0: And welcome to another episode of Sensational She-Geek live from Yancey Street. Today is Monday, November 8th, 2021, and this is episode 40A. The bulk of this episode, of course, is going to be the Eternals movie discussion. We're going to be covering everything that is covered in that Star Wars-style opening scroll, um, including the six singularities, the Dawn of Creation, Arisham, the Celestials, what they are in the mcu versus what they are in the comics ego the living planet's connection to celestials the basic plot of the movie and then uh major changes between the mcu and the comics the overall what i feel about in the general basics of the mcu versions of all these characters some with differences between their MCU versions and their comic versions. And then noteworthy moments, of which there are several. Um, some of my favorite moments of humor. I actually found all of the the music that is used, uh, including some Pink Floyd. It's all very surprising. <laughs> A lot of it is very surprising. So I have all the music listed out. And then total explanation of the end credits scenes what comes from this in the future of the MCU after Eternals, and then what is actually next in the MCU in our timeline. All of that is going to be included in the Eternals discussion. There are also going to be little interludes of Easter eggs, behind the scenes knowledge, a lot of comics knowledge and just generally smoothing over things for them as much as I think I can um, for things that might be a little bit confusing or people may have uh, missed out on in the movie. Um, And just, of course, the ideas of what I would love to see coming next after this. So uh, if you haven't seen the movie, obviously there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this. I'll try to do a quick spoiler-free review. Uh, No, I'm not going to do that. Sorry. Um, I mean, let's do that for a second right now. It was good. I liked it. It had some flaws. I'll talk about them in the spoiler review. There's not a whole lot that you can get super specific with without spoiling it and that's why I'm not doing a spoiler review or a non-spoiler review. I'm only doing a spoiler review. But before we do that I will be talking the weekly comic book pull list that is things that are coming out tomorrow the 9th of... What are we in november (laughs) and wednesday the 10th of november and there is a couple of really relevant things um and some really fun things uh that i'm excited to uh, be peeking into so we'll get talk about that before we talk about eternals but before you do that i have to do my usual plugging like i said last week um i had recently found out that one of the best ways to get apple podcasts to share and showcase in any way your podcasts. You need to have, um, it doesn't matter what's written in the reviews, it's just five star ratings on your podcast. So if you give the podcast five star ratings, doesn't matter what you write in there, doesn't matter if you actually think it's worth five stars. Uh, If you could do it five star ratings on Apple Podcasts, they will start Um, showing it to more people and suggesting it to more viewers and that would be really excellent and so we can start growing this community a bit more. Of course this podcast is available all kinds of places uh, pretty much everywhere that you can stream podcasts aside from Apple Podcasts. Um, So wherever you see it be it YouTube or Podbean or google whatever the other ones are um they're there you can go look for it uh like and follow and subscribe and do all of those things so that um the podcast will continue being well supported um, and only be able to grow more in the future but anyway, if you would like to find me online, my Instagram is Anna with the comics. My Twitter is Savage She Geek. My website is www.sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. I know it's a mouthful. I don't pay for it. So that's why it has to have that Weebly extension in there. And there's no ads or pop-ups or anything like that on it as well. So it's it's not a really obtrusive, intrusive website. Um, but what you can find there is all of the writing that I used to do before I started the podcast um which everything that i used to write is now covered in the podcast be it reviews pick lists, list discussions etc whatever geekery i was writing about on my blog is now covered in the podcast but those posts are still available on the blog in the archives if you would like to go back and read those other things you can find on the site are reading orders for favorite female characters on the front page of my site actually right now i have a few Articles and things, and reading orders that I have um, kind of highlighted for a few female characters who um, have become relevant within comics recently, or who I think are going to be becoming relevant within comics recently, um, namely Madeline Pryor, Ileana Rasputin, and Clea of Dr. Strange Mythos. Um, I never figure out what to refer to her. She doesn't have a last name in canon. I refer to her often as Clea of the Faultine because she is of the Faultine. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, kind of, the the faultiner half of her DNA, half of her parentage, because Umar, I'm getting way too into this. You don't need to know any of this, but it's Clea. Um, (laughs) and I will be doing a really in-depth, if you can't tell, I'm a big fan, uh, post on her when we get official confirmation that she will be appearing in Multiverse of Madness. That is where she'll be be becoming relevant, Um, in pop culture soon you can also find on my website my podcast pod notes which are just the notes that i go off of every time i make a podcast to make sure that i keep stay on track (laughs) as much as i can Uh, and more importantly don't miss anything that i want to make sure i mention Um, and so those are available for viewing if you would prefer to kind of read the news and not Listen to me ramble on and on about it. And it's also available, of course, for anyone who is hearing impaired, who would also like to keep up with the podcast uh, comings and goings. Um, finally, you can find links to everywhere that you can listen to the podcast. As I said before, is pretty much everywhere and includes YouTube. On YouTube, I also uh, will have the podcast all in a single playlist. And I just made a playlist of all my action figure review videos. Shada bing. Um... But you can find Action Video Review videos there, (laughs) as well as the podcast episodes. Um, The most recent review, picky review that I did was the Marvel Legends HasLab from Hasbro Sentinel. um, From 2020, really cool thing. I know a lot of people still haven't gotten theirs yet, so you can check out that review, unboxing, uh, and reveal more like uh, if you would like to. And the next video that will be coming... Hopefully this Saturday is going to be the Marvel Legends Tigra, because yes, they finally did it. Um, so however that however she turns out, I will be going over that on a YouTube video. She's, she's scheduled to arrive here Friday, so I have no doubt I will get that video done by Saturday. If you would like to donate or otherwise financially support the podcast at the bottom of every episode in each description, there are links to my link tree, which includes the podcast Patreon, as well as my my honeymoon registry for Disneyland, um, as well as. Uh, Ko-fi, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, anything that you can donate on is there in my link tree linked on the bottom of each podcast description. Uh, Finally, I know I've been mentioning this in each episode recently, but I kind of want to plug it because it's a fun one. I have a sticker that I'm selling on Redbubble. It it says, A woman's place is in the comic shop. Um, It's obviously a twist on ye old saying that I, you know, don't feel like repeating. But... um, (laughs) It's overdone. Uh, but that's there. You can get a sticker or a mug or a t-shirt. Whatever the hell you want to have it done as. Because it's Redbubble and they do that. It's on there under Shop, um, Is what my username is on there. So you can find that. And other like similar nerdy designs. Let us go ahead and get through the comic book pull list really quick. These are things that, like I said before, coming out the 9th and the 10th of this week. Well, of this month. Which, which is this week um we're going to be going over probably pretty briefly because i really want to get to the eternals discussion my date with monsters number one Nick's number one robin and batman number one batman the imposter number two horizon zero dawn well kind of we went over that week liberation number three last week I can say words in the right order, I swear. Mono number five, Maneaters of the Curse number five, Eternals number seven, Hellions number 17, Excalibur number 25, and Vampirilla number 25. But starting back up there at My Date with Monsters number one, I am not familiar with this creative team. It is Paul Tobin and Andy McDonald. It is a story about, is a one-shot story coming from Aftershock about a woman who is trying to get involved in the dating world while her life is plagued by actual nightmare monsters. The solicitation makes it sound better than I do. Here we go. Seven years ago, an attempt to weaponize dreams resulted in holes being punched through the world we know and in the world of dreams and into the world of dreams. Nightmarish creatures now stalk the land, sprouting from and killing anyone unlucky enough to dream. Uh, the only way to to save the world is from is for certain people to have their dreams come true which is how risa harumi finds herself not only fighting monsters but forced into finding true love monsters in modern dating it feels like a modern it feels like a nightmare either way and the only help risa has is a friendly-ish monster named croak and her preteen daughter maki it says here that Paul Topin wrote Bunny Mask and Andy McDonald did the right or the art for I breathe the body and multiple man. I'm a familiar with I breathe the body. It was by Zach Thompson it says that here comes a unique story of one woman's quest to save the world if only she can learn the difference between love and monsters that sounds pretty intriguing to me um i've been digging for the most part the one shots that have been coming out uh that are kind of like horror style one shots and this definitely seems to fall into that category so i will for sure be reading it nyx number one is a spin-off from the vampirella universe by uh, Christopher Priest. This is not by Christopher Priest. This is going to be by Crystal Cage with art by Mark Borstel. Not a clue who either those are either. I apologize. <laughs> this is coming from Dynamite. I am unsure if it's a limited series, but I imagine it is. Um, I can't imagine this being an ongoing one when Vampirella itself is ending my main interest in this I'm not gonna lie is the Rosebesh covers I have become a bit of a Rosebesh fan in the recent history Um, I say as a Chibiusa Rosebesh print hangs above my computer screen Um, and I, I, I just really love her. But it's um it's Nix's half... uh da- She's the half-daughter of Chaos and half-human. Um, but it was but here we go. So it says, From the pages of Amperell and Sacred Cis comes Nix, daughter of a human and the mad god Chaos himself. See, there we go. That's what I was trying to say. Nix's myrtle side has been growing stronger, troubling her all-too-human emotions. Her with all-too-human emotions. Fortunately for her, there's still the side of her that transforms into a demon of living flame and requires her to feed on the life force of living beings to survive can i have to even find her place in our world happiness even love probably not as she's about to get dragged into her dad's workplace problem i have been very intrigued i will admit with the extreme sci-fi fantasy I suppose side of the Vampirelli universe it gets very confusing which is the problem where you get into the god Chaos and all of that kind of crazy otherworldly stuff Um, and Nyx is a direct descendant from that she is literally the daughter of Chaos so I don't know. I'll I'll definitely be picking up the first issue. I hope to God I get the Rosebud cover. It's so cool. Um, but this this could be a really good one. I ended up not really liking Sacred Six. Um, it ended up being a bit too much for me. Um, for too, uh, too much going on, and I had too much going on with the comics that I was reading already. So, uh, but we'll try Nyx. I'm hoping Nyx goes better. Robin and Batman number one by Jeff Lemire and Destin Nguyen. This is going to be a really good one. Um, It's basically going to be the story of Batman and Robin, Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne, right? But from Dick Grayson's point of view. What the solicitation says is the legendary story of Batman and Robin has reached near mythic proportions. The crime fighting dynamic duo, always one step ahead of the criminals they pursue and never meeting a case too big. This isn't that story. This is the story of a young Dick Grayson, newly orphaned, struggling to find his way in a strange, difficult dark new world this is the story of robin and batman the best-selling creative team behind the eisner award-winning descender jeff lemire and justin wen reunite in gotham city to tell the story of a remarkable young man learning to navigate an incredible new world this is going to be three issues and i am already super into it jeff lemire um, is doing some variant covers i know he's got his own series like going on right now called may's book as well it's got a lot of good reviews. I don't have the time to add more stuff to my comic list that I'm already looking at, so, hey. Um, but this is definitely one that you should be checking out if you are a fan of kind of slightly parallel to normal Batman so- stories. In that same vein, <laughs> from DC Black Label, uh, where Batman and Robin is not from DC Black Label, Batman Imposter Number 2. Um, the first issue of this completely blew my mind. This is 100% a psychological Batman story. If you are into the kind of psychological take of how Batman's a crazy person who's going out there and meeting up more crazy people, this is the story that you want to read. I don't, (laughs) um, we have a genius, uh, Asian American female detective who is following this path. We have, or path to finding out who Batman is and if he's really this killer. And then we have this black woman who is a therapist, a licensed therapist, uh psychologist, possibly, who works with Bruce well and Batman as well now. Um, and then you have Batman. So you have a really strong cast of characters who are a little bit different than your normal Batman story characters. Jim Gordon isn't who we get the plot from? It is Detective Blair Wong. It is not so much even Bruce Wayne, but the woman I don't have her name in front of me. I'm sorry, her name. misses me. Um, his his therapist. Um, it's told from their perspectives, which is really honestly cool. Um, the art Andrea Sorrentino. I want to say is the artist who did Maniac of New York. Um, I'm I might be wrong. I believe. I don't know. I might be right about that, um, but I it's it's really cool, like somewhat watercolory style art. What it says for this second issue is detective blair wong sets her sights on bruce Wayne as a source of information about the batman but neither of them was ready for the sparks that flew when they met Ooh, <laughs> i haven't read the solicitation yet <laughs> unfortunately for their relationship the imposter batman has killed again and the pressure is mounting to close the case immediately that's actually an interesting point that i wasn't really expecting for them to bring up here is the corruption in the police departments not in the standard way, but in the way of there's so much pressure to close cases ASAP that they will take whatever yeah, whatever they can. They would rather pin it on somebody who they know is probably not the killer than spend another month trying to find the real killer. That's something that happens IRL all too often, um, and I'm beginning to wonder maybe that will be something they'll bring up in Batman Imposter that um, has me quite intrigued. Horizon Zero Dawn Liberation, number three. I thought it was coming out a few weeks ago, so we talked about it then. It's coming from Titan Comics. It's the continuation of the Horizon Zero Dawn series, and it is awesome. Mamo number five is by Sass Millage. This is the finale to the series. It is Boombox coming from Boom Studios. Is friendship more powerful than fate? Mamo's angry spirit and moth familiar proved to be too much for Orla and Joe, and it starts to look like there is no way out of this except to do what Mamo always wanted. Will Orla complete the circle and embrace her destiny as the new witch in town, becoming as much a part of Harsden as the tides, or is there another way? This story has been a very interesting coming-of-age story for uh, Orla and her friend Joe, Orla being the young witch, the granddaughter of Mamu, who was the local town witch, who always wanted her granddaughter to follow in her step- in her footsteps, but Ma- um, Orla never really wanted to do that, and that's where a lot of this um, friction is coming from. I-, I say this every time I talk about it, it is 100% the vibes of a Studio Ghibli film, um, up and down, left and right. Head to toe inside and out studio ghibli um complete total vibes of that so if if you're at all into the studio ghibli vibe in the slightest bit oh god mamo is super super for you man eaters the curse number five is the final issue of this series as well however i want to say it does say in the solicitation end of story arc and that gives me a little help that maybe it'll be coming back because this is and I do not say this lightly. This is the greatest comic creative team of all time. They wrote Maneaters. They wrote Spy Island. And now this is their third series together, Maneaters of the Cursed. Um, every issue they put out is a friggin' work of art. I am not joking. I am endlessly impressed. Um, and, I... and so that would make sense that they have like a buttload of comic skate haters. Like, like a buttload um so chelsea kane had come out a while back before this series restarted saying that this was going to be her last work in comics ever which is infuriating because i'll say it again this is the greatest creative comic team comic creative team of all time by the way uh chelsea kane and chuck palahniuk have a podcast together it's titled something about a pun about them being smart douchebags or something i don't know um but i haven't listened to it but it's probably hilarious knowing the two of them chelsea kane is the writer of, of this creative team um can't get enough of it it says, end of story arc, so sad. Have you seen me? The daring conclusion to Man Eaters. the curse. Camp secrets revealed, lost things are found, and an army of frogs is defeated. Meanwhile, Maud's parents continue to enjoy a nice getaway in Carmel-by-the-Sea. This issue comes with a collectible Best All-Around Camper Certificate. That's probably true, because they do love to put things in the back of the issues that you can cut out and put on your wall. <laughs> this is a genius. They're genius, I swear. Eternals number seven, I'm very interested to see how the audience responds to this after the Eternals movie, if it's going to be more interests or what. Uh, I definitely think that they timed this return of Eternals because it stopped at six quite a while ago and now it's back with seven. I definitely think they timed out this return uh, for the movie premiere, um, which was probably smart. Well, again, I'm curious how this is going to be responded to by the, by audiences. Um, also check out Eternals Thanos Rises if you want to be filled in on some of the stuff that's been happening with uh, the Eternals People recently and also Eternals Celestia uh, to get some further character backgrounds on Makari and Ajak. This series has been written by Karen Gillan with art by Asad Ribic. Oh God, and it is so good. Uh, This issue's solicitation says it's a new arc. New jumping on point. More Thanos. The Eternals have learned the truth of their existence. Their society is in shambles. Who can lead them? Who is the visionary that can lead them from the ashes? And how did they take the throne? Hail Thanos, the Mad Titan, Eternal Prime. Welcome to a new day. Welcome to hell. (laughs) Uh, if you're here for the Eternals talk and you happen to be hearing this Eternal Prime that is Prime Eternal that is exactly what you think it is from the Eternals movie Thanos is Prime Eternal I don't know why I'm singing on this episode but we are so hmm <laughs> Moving on. Alien's <laughs> number seventeen. Final issue is number eighteen, The Return of Madeline Pryor, and I am all in for that. This is by Zeb Wells and Steven Segovia. They've been doing this series since issue one together, all eighteen issues. Um this is gonna be a little bit just about Nanny and Orphan Maker, um, which should be a pretty interesting story because they are pretty interesting characters. Um I'm just waiting for Madeline Pryor to show back up. Excalibur number 25 is by Teeny Howard and Marcus Toe. I honestly haven't really been keeping up with this too much, but 26 is apparently going to be the last issue. So I'm kind of curious how it's going to end, and this does apparently hail the return of Merlin and Arthur. Um, Saturnin might be dying. Betsy Braddock has to make a choice. It sounds like there's some stuff I might want to catch up on you know, and see what's going on here. And finally, Vampirella number 25. This is the final issue of Christopher Priest's Vampirella coming from Dynamite Comics. Uh, Again, would love the Rosebesh cover of this if possible. I don't think my comic shops listen to my podcast. This is going to have a wedding in it. Dynamite has been really playing up the will they, won't they actually have a wedding because of the plague of proposals that do not lead into weddings um in the quote-unquote big two which is a pretty funny joke because it has gotten kind of annoying but um we'll see how i imagine she will probably end getting married because she and her husband go on a honeymoon in the next time we'll be seeing vampirella which is something i can't remember but it's happening and i think january so be sure to to look that up and figure it out because i didn't do it for you what can I say? There are more important things to get to on this episode, and that includes the Eternals discussion, the complete discussion about Eternals. Once more, let's go over the points that we will be hitting. Uh, starting off with a full explanation of the Star Wars style opening scroll, including the six singularities, the Dawn of Creation, Arishem and the Celestials in the comics, Arishem and the Celestials in the MCU, Eagle, the living. Say ego, ego, the living planet, who is a celestial, we'll go over him. We'll go over the basic plot, uh, including some comics info, well, quite a bit of comics info, um, some behind-the-scenes info, some fun facts, some Easter eggs. Uh, and then when the plot is completed, we will talk major MCU changes, things they switched from the comics to be different in the movies. We will talk in depth every single one of the main characters, which is really just the 10 Eternals plus Dane Whitman. Um, And that's going to include character summaries, their main roles and important parts in the movie, um, and a fair amount of comic background information. And then we're going to talk noteworthy moments, including... A real special first this movie had for the MCU. I'm not talking the queer relationship. I'm talking the other first that wasn't advertised before the movie that was very surprising (laughs) and super awkward. We'll talk about that um, in the noteworthy moments section. And then we'll go on to humor. My favorite bits of humor about the movie because it did have a nice, even spread... um, good placement of jokes and when to be serious and when not to comic relief timing and all that it was great um and then we'll talk some of the music that appeared in the movie um i don't actually remember where most of these songs happened but i remember a few so i will mention them when i come to them and then of course the two credit scenes the end credit scene and the post credit scenes or i guess it's mid and post whatever you want to call them there are two and we are talking everything about them including what they mean for the future of the mcu and what the comic book counterparts of these things that are happening are and finally of course we're gonna end this up with end this up wrap this up with what comes from this what is going to happen now that eternals has happened um and how is this going to affect the further events of the mcu um and finally the just a brief little bit on what's coming next in the mcu um in our own time starting off with in the beginning um is the opening scroll but before i actually get going here there is a lot of really clickbaity titles of articles and out there trying to make you think that things are way more complicated than they are adding in all kinds of unrelated information and spinning off ridiculous theories of things being connected, so I've done my best to narrow the history and everything down to the necessary information, as to not add the confusion, because They built this machine to be understandable to any MCU fan, so it's not going to be like rebuilding the wheel here, okay? There's no Galactus tease. Yes, they're going to meet the other MCU members at some point. These things are not that complex, Um, so don't get caught up in clickbait titles. I'll just explain everything. As cleanly as I can here. So, starting with in the beginning, which is actually how they started the movie, I'm not even joking, which actually kicks off the like, people are gonna have an issue with this because of the religious thing. But we're gonna get into that way further down the line in this discussion. But that was the first, um, hmm, the, literally, first thought in the movie. Religious people are gonna have an issue with this. And I, no offense to religious people, what I mean by that is religious net jobs. We all know they exist. <laughs> I don't think i need to explain that any further um so it starts off with literally in the beginning and then it has this title scroll of brief background information that i suppose they think um that we need and we'll go over the bits of the information that may need to be explained that isn't necessarily touched on in the movie and then like how they explain the celestials in the movie um (laughs) it'll all make sense when you get there don't worry so it starts off with the big title scroll says in the beginning before the six singularities and the dawn of creation came the celestials arishem the prime celestial created the first sun and brought life into the universe Life began and thrived, all was in balance, until an unnatural species of predator emerged from the deep space to feed on intelligent life. They were known as the Deviants. The universe was plunged into chaos. To restore the natural order, Arishem sent Eternals, immortal heroes from the planet Olympia, to eliminate the Deviants. Eternals had unyielding faith in Arishem until one mission led by the Prime Eternal, Ajax changed everything and title scroll. There are two typos in this title scroll that I am really on the fence about if they were on purpose or not. Um, the first one is on the line, the Irish and blah, blah, created the first sun and brought light into the universe. The I of into is capitalized, um, which I 100% thought was just a mistake until I noticed the I later on. is also capitalized when you read Eternals had unyielding faith in Arashem, that I in in is also capitalized just like into the universe so i'm kind of on the fence of if that is something they they had to have done that on purpose there's no way they were going to make that mistake right so assuming that that was done on purpose um this must be them playing up the godly factor here um capitalizing things you know tends to be along those lines. So that's that's what I'm leaning towards. If you think that was a mistake, though, I don't blame you, because I definitely thought it was for a while. But to explain some of that title scroll, it starts off with this before the Six Singularities and the Dawn of Creation came, the Celestials. So the Six Singularities is um, basically the Six Infinity Stones, but what it it's really explained Uh, for the first time as we've seen it, by Benicio del Toro's collector in Guardians of the Galaxy. He says, Before creation itself, there were six singularities. Then the universe exploded into existence, and the remnants of those systems were forged into concentrated ingots, infinity stones." which really means six singularities existed before the creation of the universe, which the Big Bang turned into the six infinity stones. He then continues, as in Benicio de Toro's Collector, then continues to show the Guardians the history of a Celestial, specifically Eson the Searcher, using the Power Stone to destroy a planet. The Dawn of Creation then uh, refers to Arishem creating the first sun, and then presumably triggering the Big Bang, which then turned those singularities into the stones. As for Arishem and the Celestials themselves, in the comics, a being called the First Firmament They are a sentient universe that felt lonely and decided to create life, thus resulting in the Celestials. As for the creation of life on Earth, it started about 4 billion years ago when a Celestial infected with a space parasite known as the Horde fell to Earth and died, vomiting blood across the primordial landscape. In Jack Kirby's comics, the Celestials, Jack Kirby. In case you're unaware, Jack Kirby was the creator of the Eternals, the Celestials, literally all of that world um so that was, that was the og stuff in the comics the celestials created the eternals and the deviants by experimenting on prehistoric humans a modern update by jason aaron in the avengers is that the eternals were created by the celestials to monitor progression of that accident of that spill of celestial death goop onto earth um, and of course adding while the celestials were here they created the x gene Yes, that means mutant next gene In the MCU, celestials can only create more celestials by impregnating planets with their eggs and then protecting the mortal life forms that live on those planets until the newborn alien god hatches. The eggs are actually called seeds and they are planted by Arishem and host planets across the universe, which in this case does include Earth celestial life seeds are a thing from the comics but so are death seeds a fun fact here celestials get the death seeds to individuals who are charged by the celestials with the goal of aiming of aiding natural evolution of superior species on worlds the individuals ascend in higher in power and strength but their minds become so twisted to the point that they will see death as something beautiful that makes space for something new to come and will not have any problem killing millions if not billions of living beings to achieve their goal now who you ask is the most notable character to be given a celestial death seed apocalypse and Savonur just saying not saying they're gonna do that but it's it's out there (laughs) now if you're curious at all about Ego the living planet now he has called himself a celestial when we meet Peter Quill's father Ego in Guardians of the Galaxy volume 2 he tells them that he is a celestial a being that started out as a few cells that were utterly quote utterly and entirely alone and became sentient being as he grew into his shell of a planet around himself or rather grew the shell of a planet around himself now um that was kind of a thing that does not quite fit perfectly um There is ways you can make it fit here, and that's where these theories come in. So um, my favorite theory is that Ego is a lost celestial egg being just the brain and the nervous system that got stuck in a planet and never really seeded. Um, Ego himself, when explaining his origin, said that he came from just a few cells and grew himself. In size, we even see his, you know, planet's internal brain and nervous system at the end of Guardians Volume 2. So this theory makes a lot of sense to me. You can easily imagine that Ego was seeded into a planet which the life on the planet failed. And since his celestial seed couldn't hatch, he just grew and became the planet itself. Um, However, he was able to impregnate an Earth woman as well as countless other alien species quite dark um i guess that could still make this theory work because he would be able to travel to other planets to to mimic their biology with his little pawns that he sends off so while i feel like james gunn kind of jumped the gun with calling ego a celestial that theory um of ego being us being having been a celestial seed life seed that never came properly to fruition because the life on the planet died out too early, um, and then he just kind of grew into something else from there. That that does make a lot of sense with the kind of messed up start James Gunn gave ego, but uh you can make it work. I think that works. But as James Gunn also pointed out, though I think it's the only thing that he's addressed Uh, regarding ego and eternals um he said that peter quill can't get his powers back after meeting the eternals i don't know why somebody would have even thought that um (laughs) why would they go that direction but he he did clarify in case you were wondering that ego cannot or uh, peter quill (laughs) cannot get his half celestial powers back um because he gave those up when he saw and he also clarified that was not eternity that he saw that was just like him being able to live for eternity so that's a little bit disappointing but whatever so getting more into the plot um we're going to skip over a lot of the details and just hit like the basics. Okay. So, um, Arishem, remember the, 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 the celestial Arishem can speak with the eternals through their prime eternal, which is in this case, Salma Hayek. He summons, it's kind of an odd thing, but it seems to be that he summons her consciousness to him possibly, and then sends the, response or the conversation, I guess, back to her in this little sphere that she takes into her chest that actually hides physically in her chest. Um, And she reports to the other Eternals what it was they discussed. They live in a ship called the Domo, uh, which, fun fact, the Domo was the name of an Eternal who is an administrator in their city of Olympia in the comics. Um, when we do first meet Cersei in modern times, she is living in London teaching students science or history or both. Uh, and she's dating with, She's dating Day Whitman, who is apparently a co-worker. They go out at night with Sprite and ending fighting up some deviants that nobody saw coming, uh, which does prompt the surprise arrival of ex-boyfriend or husband i guess icarus they haven't seen each other in quite a long time having broken up about 500 years ago after being together for about five thousand years she explains who they are the whole eternal situation to dane uh, and he does take it quite well one thing i did have a little trouble with is that um if they're all so old cersei and all of them she really should have been somewhat aware of the Whitman family history, Black Knight history, which we'll get into a little bit later. But um, especially after the scene where she gives him his family ring, uh, the one that he then uses to track down the ebony blade, presumably, you really expect her to know what's going on. Um, when he brings it up to talk about later, they even mention the Ebony Blade at one point in the movie, so they know about it. So how does she not make the connection to him, with her having the ring? I don't know. I like gotta assume she's playing dumb. Um, did she pick him out because she knew who he was? I don't know. I don't know honestly. But um, we'll, we'll we'll have to honestly just wait <laughs> and see if they address that in a few years. I imagine when we see them next. So the group of them go to Ajax's house, uh, where they find her already dead, <laughs> apparently killed by a deviant. But we do find out later on that it's not true. It was Icarus. I was totally right about Icarus killing Ajax. That was my main theory about this whole damn movie. I totally did think though that he was gonna be under mind control. Uh, but in retrospect, making it his choice is uh, it was kind of what forced him in the end of the movie to kill himself in the sun or so we assume he had gone too far off the deep end basically Uh, and the reason that he kills ajak is because she wants to stop the emergence which we'll talk about (laughs) and he can't deviate from his mission because he has no personality Uh, we get to see characters talk to the celestial a few times first with ajak and arishem when she first brings up that she thinks something about this planet makes it special and not worth whatever the cost may be, which Arsham explains to Cersei much later on, is the destruction of the planet to birth a new celestial. That is the cost. That is the mission. Cersei first speaks to Arsham upon discovering Ajax's body, and the sphere inside of Ajax goes into Cersei, marking her as the chosen next eternal prime. His explanation to her, Arashem's, later fills her in on all of the necessary information of their true mission, and she goes on to tell the other Eternals what the news is. Celestials use the energy from a host planet to make suns, creating heat, life, and energy for galaxies to form. Um, More or less is kind of what Arashem says. And without that life cycle, or without that cycle, all life will die. The origins of the Eternals, according to Arishem, is that Olympia is not real. He created them on a thing called the World Forge where their memories are erased after each emergence, and stored there it would seem for Arashem to study. He created the Deviants to keep local predators on any given planet from keeping intelligent life from erupting, which I would argue makes the ego theory make even more sense if his did not have Deviants their local intelligent life could have just died out. But but the Deviants evolved and became stronger threats themselves. Eternals needed to create to be created to fix this mistake hence the deviance anger i gotta say one of the most satisfying things about this movie entirely as a comics fan was the scale of the eternals i'm sorry celestials (laughs) i keep doing that they're big stony robot looking things but they are absolutely gargantuan we see this Each time an Eternal speaks with Arishem and they appear like a gnat, if even that, in front of his massive red six-eyed head. So... It makes sense then that when Arishem appears outside of Earth to pick up Cersei and Fastos and Kingo for judgment at the end of the movie, you see people freaking the hell out because he is there beyond the atmosphere, beyond the blue sky, staring down on us from out there you only see his bust basically because he is so large and it takes up the entire horizon absolutely terrifying seeing something out there in space where you know you should not be able to see anything that i feel like that's something um primordial within us that would terrify it that does terrify us even seeing it on screen major megalophobia terror (laughs) i loved it uh the celestials that we see in the movie include uh jemiah the analyzer nazar the calculator and hargan the measurer that's all aside from arishem and the one who they kill um we already know about isan um who was the one that we saw in guardians and the dead celestial whose head becomes nowhere the port basically <laughs> that we see in guardians once the eternals are gathered and um, they finally get everybody together plans are made and broken characters are died flashbacks are had hard truths are revealed and in the end we end up here on an island in the middle of the ocean with the celestial tiamat breaking through the earth's core and surfacing um this was wild wild um cause you start to see like a little bit of something coming up through the ocean floor right and you're like oh okay so that's like his whole body no that was his fingertip that was one fingertip the bitch is huge <laughs> it's like obviously when we see Arishem out in space later he's he's a full-grown celestial and that's going to be super different but Tiamat as a baby celestial being birthed from the earth um wow that is that is what I just said about megalophobia we are right back there (laughs) um he is a big boy (laughs) Uh, so so that's where we are and the Eternals uh, who are on Cersei's side of things they want to connect with one another and create a Unimind which I'll explain in a second uh, that would superpower her or it was originally going to be Druid but now it's going to be her um, to make her able to stop his rise basically Icarus and Sprite are fighting against them and Sprite actually stabs Cersei which... I mean get over yourself sprite (laughs) uh cersei ends up being able to connect all the deviants or sorry all the eternals and tiamat uh, to herself and the unimind using his own energy with their powers and her powers all of the energy and her powers to turn him to ice because remember she can change matter so she changes him into ice. It's very, I mean, badass. It's brutal too. Oh, we'll get there in a second. In the comics, the Eternals discover that they could join their will and intelligence together to create one powerful entity called the Unimind. It has no race or gender and was made of light, mind, and pure energy. You could also have other species such as humans that could join into the Unimind to keep them safe from harm. The Eternal Prime is usually the one who is able to summon the Unimind. And this was, of course, created by good old Jack Kirby. Currently in the comics, the Avengers base is a giant celestial that had been previously buried in snow, and they call it Avengers Mountain, looking at frozen Tiamat in the ice, frozen ice Tiamat in the water, I suppose. Um, I, I, you gotta wonder maybe if, if they're going to make that the new Avengers base, it's certainly big enough, it is certainly big enough um there were also rumors that namor is triggered triggered is angered it's probably a better word by oceanic destruction stemming from the eternals movie which we would see in wakanda forever and after this i would say yeah that that, that, that that's a safe bet um tiamat's partial breaching I'm sure just completely rearranged the entire landscape of the ocean floor, likely flattening any underwater cities for pff, thousands of miles that had to be. Um, and I do feel like there should have been a lot more water rising with a giant, literally giant coming up through the ocean floor. But maybe water was going downward somewhere, too. I don't know. Um, And also, would that cool the planet down a lot? Or change the atmosphere of that part of the ocean? Because that's suddenly a very cold thing in the water. You have a giant ice cube that's probably... It literally goes from above the surface to probably the core of the Earth. And it's just a giant ice cube. Will that cool the whole Earth? Could that do that? Stop global warming. Um, also, d- did they did they just trick a baby into killing itself? I, I think they did. <laughs> they-, they definitely did. In the comics, Tiamat was a celestial who rebelled against Arishim and was imprisoned in the earth. Uh they called it the Dreaming Celestial, and Tiamat slept for thousands of years while humanity developed, and then he woke in modern times. Tiamat had an actual conscience and he couldn't follow through with destroying humanity. Instead, he chose Makari as his own prime eternal, communicating through him, as Makari was male at the time and until fairly recently. This would also be when Makari lost their voice and hearing, which I bring up a little bit later. Team that stood over San Francisco while he was on Earth and was eventually destroyed during an X Men event. At the end of the movie, when Arishem is taking the three remaining Earthbound Eternals, which is Kingo, Cersei, and Fastos, he takes them uh, uh off the planet and up into space to look him in the eye, basically. Um That's 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 when he shows up and the scale and you only see the top, the top section of him, but is like covering the, oh my God, it's huge. Uh, but he takes them and he says to them, you have chosen to sacrifice a celestial for the people of this planet. I will spare them, but your memories will show if they are worthy to live and I will return for judgment. And then he just blips the fuck out of there with them. So he's going to go read their memories and come back at some point. Uh, I would assume that, It's probably going to be he comes back and drops them off and says, okay, I'm going to destroy your planet now, and then they all have to get together. I don't think they're going to be able to be rescued from Arishem. I just don't think that's possible. (laughs) Now let's talk some of the changes that were made between the comic version and the cinematic version first off the genders orientations and races of the characters has pretty much been resolved in the comics through as being different that's been wiped that's been wiped over pretty well um through the comic book eternals being able to return to life in any form they desire um also in the comics ajak um, well, I should say in the movie, Ajak is a prime eternal, as opposed to Xuras, who is Thena's father, who has not even appeared as a character here. In the comics, Ajak is actually their spiritual leader, and she is the only one who speaks with Celestials. Makari's disability in the comics are explained as stemming from when she tried to speak with the Celestial herself, and lost her voice and hearing as the cost. I get that not needing an explanation is part of normalizing, normalizing disabled people in movies, but I still kind of thought that was a cool piece of her character. The fact that the Eternals aren't human in any way is a big difference. They're not from Earth at all. They're highly specialized robots, so it would seem some kind of celestial tech. They don't just return to life like they do in the comics, though theoretically Arsham has backups and could rec- he could recreate them early at any time in theory. And they don't take anyone's life when they get resurrected, then it does take they do take lives whenever they finish their mission in the form of the birth of a celestial destroying a planet of people. So um, it's, you know, it's slightly similar, I suppose. Olympia in the comics is the city of the prime Eternals. um, The main ruling Eternals faction, I guess it's not really a good term for it. Um, There are a lot more Eternals on earth in the comics and they are only from Earth in the comics. There is 100 Eternals and 100 Deviants. And though I called Zorazena, Zorazena, Zorazena's father earlier, Eternals in the comics cannot have children. I kind of imagine the MCU version can't either since they're robots. Of sorts. Um, in the comics, they just have designated family structures that have always been there. Um, the one time that they did attempt to have physical children, Thanos was the outcome, so that doesn't... that's not allowed. <laughs> uh, the World Forge was an interesting thing to come across because that is actually a DC Comics thing, which is really odd. Um, it's not a thing that exists in Marvel comics. It's a DC comic. Just, I'm I'm not even joking. I'm not, I'm not really sure if you understand why they did that. Explain it to me. Because I do not... I, I googled World Forge Marvel and I found nothing but the MCU stuff. And I knew about the DC ones, but... And why, did they, why did they call... It, whatever. It doesn't really matter that much, I guess. Um... And then also in the, in the comics, Deviants feed off of Eternals, um, or sorry, in the movie, oh my gosh, Deviants feed off of Eternals and they can absorb their powers and memories and gain more humanoid qualities that way. Now let's talk the MCU versions of all of the characters, starting off with Ajax. My first thoughts about Ajak was that Salma Hayek clearly could not take herself seriously in the full ajak garrett Gar- 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 costume Regalia was the word I was going for there. Costume. Uh, but otherwise, she did a pretty good job. She has apparently signed on for multiple projects, and her powers are to heal herself and others. Icarus is Superman with less personality, but a lovely accent. He's not very smart either, and is not really able to think for himself. He literally trades his life for not being able to stop following orders. You think maybe he's just being withholding, but no, he really is just that surface. Nothing else there but what you see in his mission orders. And I am genuinely not sure how they got away with calling him Superman straight up. I thought there were rights issues with that. And he does kill himself by flying into the sun at the end, which is ironic because of the Greek myth of Icarus flying too close to the sun. And yeah, it's just funny. Irony. Ha! We have Thena played by Angelina Jolie, and they did a fantastic job. I'm a little bit surprised to see her continuing with the MCU, but if she was ever going to, it was always going to be Galactic. Thena developed mind weary, um, which I'm pretty sure I just pronounced right. Mod weary, that's what I thought it was. Um, Mod weary. She developed that some hundreds of years ago. Um, which is what they believe was basically just madness. Eventually, we learn in the movie that it's due to what the Eternals are and that they're super fancy machines with dozens of past lives. Um, And sometimes those memories can still leak through. Even with all of this, Thena manages to survive to kill off the head deviant in an admittedly killer action scene and she goes on to search for other eternals across space at the end obviously Athena was the basis of the goddess athena and many other similar myths she has a really great speech to cersei before the final battle as well in the comics mod weary is a real real deep cut it is a secret curse of the eternals it's only been mentioned a few times Um, it's it's due to although their bodies being have been transformed by the celestials and their minds are still human and they're not designed to deal with a millennia of memories i imagine that this error was patched up with their modern ability to resurrect in the comics however that they would like and that's why it hasn't really been around again Cersei is the humanitarian. She ends up being the new Prime Eternal before Arishem takes her off planet to be judged for killing a baby Celestia to save Earth. She's chosen by Ajax to be the next Prime Eternal, their leader. No doubt destined to be an Avenger. And I'm genuinely not sure how much of her experience with Arishem off planet will be shown ever, if any. Honestly. Dane Whitman, I really, really like how he turned out. I was kind of surprised with Kit Harington. Um, Kit Harington going on to play a character who's going to end up being a Black Knight. Like, that's that's just funny because of his, obviously, Game of Thrones history. Um, he's clearly going to be a major player in the MCU for a good while, especially after the end credits scene, which we'll talk about towards the end here. Cersei tells him that... Oh, that was another funny thing, was to hear... Um, Gosh, what's his name who plays Icarus and um, Kit Harrington talk about Cersei like, I love you, Cersei. Oh, my God. That was so funny because Cersei gave him Thrones. Okay, anyway. Um, Cersei tells him, Dane, to reconnect with his uncle, which in combination with the ring she gives him from his ancestors is how he winds up where he is at the end. Once again, we will talk about it when we get there. In the comics, Dane Whitman's uncle is John Garrett, a criminal who used the ebony blade to bring disgrace to the name of the Black Knight, and Dane inherits the blade from him. Sprite, she always wanted to be like everyone else, but is cursed to be a preteen forever. Kind of makes sense, she goes down the path that she does. The actress stumbled quite a bit in the beginning, in my opinion, like most of the rest though, honestly. Uh, But she does get better as things go along. She gets to be a human in the end, so I'll be very surprised if we see her in any kind of important role again. Makari is a deaf mute who uses vibrations to hear, kind of like Daredevil does um she is easily a much smarter fight smarter smarter fighter than icarus when they fought she was making smarter moves than his brute force anger she spent several centuries in their ship the domo since the group split up keeping watch over their things when we get to see them all together on the domo again it is full of a lot of stuff including um, something that fans are claiming looks similar to a certain specific Moon Knight costume. Um, it speaks of the Emerald Tab- Tablet, which has ties with Otherworld, which is a magical realm kind of parallel to ours connected through the uk they talk about excalibur uh which is more otherworld stuff he he was it was wielded by captain is traditionally wielded by captain britain and i did not see this but some article said that apparently the holy grail was also in one of those shots in the domo Druig is the mind-control Eternal, which I thought would make him the villain, but no, he's just a cult leader. He leads a cult in the Amazon rainforest, which for some reason they just labeled the location as... Amazon, for some reason, I assume Betazos paid them to, but anyway, Druig's cult in modern days is, they're like stuck in modern times without any tech of any kind, and then he leaves and heads off with his Eternals family, and very clearly is super comfortable with modern fashion in life, so he was, he was totally just ruling over those poor forest losers, like, making... excuse me, Uh, like a king while he reaped all the benefits from the rest of the outside world. But Druig also showed lots of empathy, wanting to use his powers to stop horrific events throughout history from taking place, but was always stopped by Ajax and or Icarus. Fastos, um, he always wanted to give the humans more tech than they're ready for. He's the builder. At certain points of history, he regrets having given them any of his help, like when Japan is bombed by the US military twice. He has a family, a husband who knows his truths and winds up taking over, apparently, the house that Ajax lived in when it's all said and done with that family. Of course, being on earth when Arashem gets back comes back, he's taken alongside Circe and Kingo to be judged. Phastos was also the one to take out Icarus long enough that Circe could get to the Unimind, um, and or get the Unimind back on track. Gilgamesh, he is the silent hero, the one who took care of Thena for centuries after she developed weary His power is like this really super intense major punch. <laughs> Um, he's making cast iron pie baked in an outdoor oven when we first meet him, covered in fresh battle wounds from fighting a deviant, and then Thena when her mod-weary memories were triggered. Uh, that, there is a good summary of his character, I think. Um, that's, that's a good one shot of who he is. Big and tough, and able to walk off broken bones without a problem but really a big softy with real actual emotional depth as well He cooks for the group while they stay with him and Thena out there in Australia. And when it became clear that he was facing his end, my husband was so mad that he actually yelled in the theater. Gilgamesh is also the one who is, she, he helps Cersei get past her mental block and finally reach out to Arisham herself, getting the answers that kind of send us down the final plot lines of the movie to trying to stop the emergence. Finally, Kingo, he is a Bollywood star from a line of Bollywood stars. It's his great-grandfather, his grand. It's all him pretending to be his own ancestors. He ends up going into space to search for the... Oh, no, he doesn't. Why Why am I saying that? He doesn't go into space to search for the Eternals. He ends up getting taken by Arishem. Um with yeah with fastos and cersei when we first meet him he is filming a dance sequence for some kind of bollywood movie about icarus apparently where he is the star his expressions are delightful um even when they're sad he did agree with icarus in the end but he teamed up with the rest of the celestials because he knew that was the right thing to do he would have taken care of Sprite as she was going to be human and growing up. But like I said, he did get taken. And there was one thing that I did forget to say about Fastos is that Brian Tyree Henry, uh, Br- Brian Tyree Henry. Um, is that right? It was a Brian Henry Tyree. Yeah, Brian Tyree Henry. I just had to Google it real quick. Um, just to make sure. I, what a phenomenal, what a phenomenal actor. Um, I wanted to mention this, but I forgot, but, so we're doing it now. Um, first time I encountered him in a movie, or in in, in anything, in media, was in Atlanta, where he played the rapper Paperboy, um, and I think he actually did his own singing in that too, which is pretty cool, um, and then he, he voiced, um, was he was in, was he in the, uh, the... Gla- not Gladiator, Godzilla versus, yeah, he was in Godzilla versus Kong. He voiced Miles Morales's dad and in into the Spider Verse. He's had a good amount of smaller roles on stuff, but this him as Fastos was very surprising. I'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute when we get to the newsworthy moments. But um, he played a a gay, a married gay man, and you would not have known without reminding yourself that he had ever played a rapper from Atlanta, Georgia named Paperboy. The the, the range, I am so happy to see that his career has just skyrocketed since Atlanta. Uh, but anyway, uh, we'll move on now to the next section. Noteworthy moments in the movie. Starting off with That MCU First. <laughs> not the uh the relationship i'm talking about the world's most awkward sex scene (laughs) i don't even okay so this was the first mcu sex scene and boy was it awkward not just to watch um which was very awkward but the event itself (laughs) Um, more than once on the since watching the movie, I've heard of people who could not figure out what was going on in that scene until Icarus was <clears throat> grunting and pumping. yes, really, and they were just on the ground on some rocks. <laughs> I don't think they even had a blanket down. <laughs> Uh, there were definitely some moms covering their eyes in the theater. It was um surprising, and I I I think they were trying to show us the connection between the two of them. But it was like maybe it was something about maybe they were trying to show like oh Icarus can only connect physically, Cersei connects emotionally. And that's what's happening with her and dane and she and icarus only ever connected Physic is that what we're trying to keep with that because that's not i've had i've been thinking about this for a while and that is not what i got out of it but um sure bro yeah whatever you want to say the scene was for and the lead up to it wasn't very much better either with Ajax telling icarus to go tell cersei that he loves her But then he just kind of says i'm yours and they just drop to the ground and have sex (laughs) he does say i love you during the sex but i feel like that doesn't count for the first time saying it if you're physically inside the person um they do marry afterwards and and spend thousands of years together but but that's not the concern here folks (laughs) there was a lot of very strangeness about this scene including why it was included in the movie i i know i've been saying a lot that i will bet money on things but i will bet money that there is a deleted scene um that they're gonna have in this like extended edition or whatever that's gonna end up being like way cooler than this very awkward sex scene that everybody's gonna be mad wasn't actually in the movie moving on from that there was a very unexpected but extremely a delightful romance between Makari and Zhruig of all characters, and I am pleasantly surprised to find that the internet is completely taken with them as a couple. So that's fun. Um, it was kind of funny because going into this, everybody was like, "Oh yeah, it's gonna be like Cersei and Icarus," and then you know, Dane as like the little guy who's like trying to woo her or whatever, and they're gonna be the main couple of the movie. No, nobody wanted them together. <laughs> (laughs) Everybody just went Macari and drew together. And then, of course, there is the first queer superhero in the MCU, Fastos. In modern times, he is married to a man from Dubai known as Ben, and they have a son together. And I do, I already gave my kudos to Brian Tyree Henry. He just knocks it so far out of the park. It is unbelievable. And um, it's just a really cool it was a really cool thing to see how they portrayed that relationship as so normal and they let them kiss and they let them be parents together and, you know, things that queer couples often get denied in media we had here. And so that was that's a really, really positive um development in representation and things and a big step of having a large manly intelligent black man being a married gay man is that is it's normal it's normal because there is no normal you know you don't need to have there's no one type of queer person um and so having him in here and being just this normal guy who has got this family he wants to take care of you know in modern times it's such a positive representation of these kinds of relationships. And I'm really happy that that um, was done so well. Uh, the Kingo, he used the metaphor of Peter Pan and Tinkerbell to confront Sprite about being in love with Icarus. That has to do with a lot of her anchor at Cersei and why she ends up teaming with Icarus and <laughs> stabbing Cersei. Um, it's sad yes um she was cursed to be a child forever nobody will ever see her as anything but a child but she does get turned human again in the end or not again for the first time in the end so she gets her way you know she gets her way (laughs) um cersei she turns a single deviant into a truly nightmarish tree which is a plot device that is not really ever brought up or used again or explained, but it was creepy and cool. Um, and there was so much stuff that I can't help but feel like religious, <laughs> religious nut jobs are going to have an issue with. They forget that the writers of these movies are creating works of fiction, not things that they think are based in reality. I'm not going to address that any further or explain it any further. Uh, in the, uh, we already mentioned Excalibur, but it was a kind of a cool interaction between, I believe it was Thena and, was it Athena and Sprite? where Sprite asks, is that the ebony blade? And Thena says, it's Excalibur. So two really cool Easter eggs back to back right there. And I do believe also it's safe to say there was a lot of commentary on isolationism um, in the way that the Eternals live their lives and the way that they have kind of seen the world develop um, and how they've chosen to continue on through all of that. Now let's talk the humor of Eternals. I really, really enjoyed the balance that they had of elements in this. There was some times in the MCU that I just want Guardians. Guardians. Um where it seems like there's just too much humor being forced. And it's it's really low-level humor, it's fart jokes and stuff like that, and it just doesn't really work for me i think this pretty much stuck above that this was for the most part genuinely funny humor and smart humor at times um so you get what the first the first funny moment i think in the entire thing was dane whitman when he's out with cersei and sprite he he tries to jump over the fence and up the hill as quickly as cersei and sprite do um but that doesn't really work out because you know he's literally just human (laughs) and he decides to just walk around it was pretty funny um icarus and druig had a really hilarious moment where it was druig picked up a a box of twinkies in the ship and icarus picked up like a tablet or something um and they look at each other and without saying any words trade off what each other has and walk away (laughs) so it ends up with icarus with the twinkies and druig with the whatever the thing was it was informational um another funny moment was fastos uh when we were learning about his character one of the key moments was he wanted to give the humans an engine uh way earlier it was like the fifth century or something he wanted to give them an engine no it would have been way before that wouldn't it whenever it was um he wanted to give them that technology and he was convinced that they were not ready for it and so he settles for the plow and he gives them a plow (laughs) um kingo had this oh my gosh comic it wasn't even comic relief because he had some really great moments but he was this valet he called him his valet but he was like his camera guy who was helping make like a documentary about all of them which he just decided to do i guess um and all of his reactions interactions i mean between him and literally anybody were golden (laughs) if not funny then heartwarming like just completely stellar every every line he had the entire first account encounter with him where he meets the other eternals tells them he knows everything you find out how he met kingo where it was he he thought he was a vampire and he tried to kill him and you know it's like and then he convincing kingo to go with the eternals to be with his family and blah 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 (laughs) it is it's really really funny um he the first time he sees a deviant he calls it beautiful and he has never-ending supply of cameras but each time somebody breaks one of his cameras the next one he pulls out is slightly smaller so it goes from like an on the shoulder you know thing in your eye like shotgun style camera um to like a slightly like a camera quarter slightly smaller than that you hold it in front of you camera quarter to one of those um just like what would like Twinkie sized almost ones that have the screen that flips out to the side and the round lens. I now have round lens. I don't know why I said round lens. Um, and then the cell phone. So he goes, like, every level down. Uh, each time it breaks, he gets a slightly smaller camera out. Really, really funny. And there was so much more with him. Literally every line and interaction that he had with anyone and anything was golden. Kingo had, of course, fantastic expressions. He also had one really funny reference to Thor, saying, Thor used to throw me around as a kid, and now he's at an Avenger and won't even return my calls. That was pretty hilarious. Um... They all refer to each other constantly as friends from college, even when it's obviously a lie. (laughs) They still call each other friends from college. It's their explanation, no matter how much sense it does not make. Um, And then when asked what she can do, Cersei's response was just to list off all the different things she can turn a rock into. Okay, girl, um, thank you, but you're a bit more complex than that. (laughs) she can change any non-living matter into any other non-living matter it's a bit more than just turning rocks into other things <laughs> and she got so excited about it too it was so cute um and then when we first meet gilgamesh they tell him there was the unprecedented global earthquake three days ago and his response was that's what that was i thought it was drunk <laughs> um which again goes along with this kind of like big dude but total sweetheart character The music of Eternals caught a lot of people by surprise, I think, because we don't usually get quite this much modern music in movies. Um, I think the closest thing we would have had before would have been the Iron Man soundtracks. Um, But we, pretty early on, we get Time by Pink Floyd, that's the first recognizable song we get in the movie, period. That's a big, famous song. How much money did Disney Marvel have to shell out for those rights? Holy Pink Floyd? That's a big one. That's that's a lot. Um, and the list, the list continues to go on. We get uh, Sugarfoot black joe lewis stay in the groove part one by the dap kings featuring ricky calloway losing you uh by pierre Havet, jean gaston renard and carl sigmund not Hero by selena Sharman, friends by bts lend me your comb by carl perkins mama tried by merle haggard juice by lizzo which is Cersei's ringtone. I remembered that one. Happy Children, written by Harry Bluestone and Emil Cadkin. Graceful Nature, written by Stuart Roslin. The End of the World by Skeeter Davis, which is the incredibly moving scene of Bastos saying goodbye to his family and the Eternals gathering at the, like, I guess it was, um, uh, Babel, Babel, no. Babylon, yeah. Um, where they were, well, they dug literally dug their ship out of the ground, and then you have uh, two composed songs: Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Five in D Major, second movement, affettuus toso. Oh God, sorry. Composed by Johann Sebastian Bach, and Prelude in G Major, bunch of numbers by Johann Sebastian Bach as well, and finally feels like the first time by foreigner which I believe was the first end credits scene song. Potentially the most looked forward to section of this review is the end credits scene. We're gonna talk first the end credits scene, which I think is actually the mid credits scene, and then the post credits scene. Starting off at the mid-credits scene, we have Makari, Druig, and Thena all on their ship, the Domo, looking for other Eternals across the universe. Because remember, while the Eternals in the comics are just from Earth, Eternals in the MCU are on each planet that has a celestial seed of life in it, right? apparently it has been some time because they seem to be getting frustrated then they feel a presence and down the hall a little colorful explosion from nowhere uh, lets in Pip the Troll as voiced by Patton Oswalt designed after the face of Seth Green <laughs> my initial reaction was, thank God, this is an early take. He looks so fake because it was it was not a good CGI job at all. Um, so I have no doubt that this is the equivalent of the first time we saw Thanos, uh, where he's kind of discolored and has like, hey, see CGI. Next time we see Pip, he's gonna look way better. He introduces, though, uh the brother of Titan of the, of the Titan Thanos, Star Fox, aka Eros. I don't recall if they said Star Fox, but that's who he is. He's Eros. As played by yes, Harry Styles, based on his outfit, design, and the somewhat awkwardness of delivery, specifically to Angelina Jolie. I would bet that he was brought on set very quickly in last minute, put in a backup of some somebody else's costume with minor modifications or probably major because of the coloring, and had maybe a day to learn his lines. I mean his hair is very clearly spray-painted red. And so that really just screams to me, last minute. Same as Pip, we will no doubt be seeing great improvement in his character design next time we see him. That being said, they, they did a good job, especially if it was a quick job. He's got the big V shape for the fox's head on his outfit, much larger than the comic version, and the white, you know, center with red limbs and right bright red hair. He's even got the face for it, I'm kind of surprised to see. Now I have mentioned this before, but Eros isn't the greatest role model um, to be falling for in the MCU. He was once put on trial in the comics for using his powers to coerce women into having sexual relationships with him. Yeah, Jennifer Walters, aka She-Hulk, ends up being his lawyer, or sorry, ends up being the lawyer against him, but Jen then winds up in a relationship with Eros herself, and she can't decide if it was something Eros forced her into or not. It's all very controversial. You can see why that would be a super sketchy power to have, um... And with the two of them being in the MCU at the same time coming up here soon, I feel like that's a plot line that has to be addressed in some way in the future. Um, I think if they were to completely ignore it, it would be, mm, people would be not, I I think that they owe us a little bit of a fixing for that. Eros explains himself as being a fellow Eternal. So I have to guess that he came from another planet where the Eternals maybe went rogue, but I feel like mm, it's more likely that he's lying and is totally just going to screw with them. Obviously, in the comics, Eros is from Titan, just like his brother Thanos. Thanos was created by the Eternals having a child together, which made a monstrosity. Eros is... Well, they haven't really given him a modern explanation in the comics as of yet, but they are brothers, so I assume it's something to do with step or half or something. I don't honestly... No, but um Pip in the comics his most no I mean in my opinion his most noteworthy point of history was when he had the the fact that he had the space stone you know the space gem uh, between his toes for a very long time he just kept it between his toes because he thought that it looked cool so that's that's Pip <laughs> oh and he has like a magical drink that gets him super intoxicated or something that's yeah good old Pip Now the post-credits scene. Dane Whitman is nervous. He stands before an old box. He opens it shakily. He reads the Latin words, Mors mihi lucrum, carved on the inside, which translates to, Death is my reward. As he stares at the ancient black sword inside, wrapped loosely in somewhat rotting rags, Whispers and the sounds of rushing air flood the space to make it super spooky. Extending his hand to touch the blade, a dark, somewhat sentient-seeming force on the blade's edge seems to actually reach back like metal shavings towards a magnet. Dane mutters, I'm sorry, I have to try, no doubt knowing that wielding the sword has got to be helpful to him in this very odd situation, no matter how dangerous. But before he can remove the sword from its case, an unseen voice whispers behind him. Oh, sorry, interrupts, he's not whispering. Sure, you're ready for that, Mr. Whitman? And it cuts to black. I apologize for that imitation, it was not good. But it was Blade, (laughs) voiced by Mahershala Ali, who, might I remind you, is a friggin' Oscar winner. We got some good people up in this bitch. Uh, He no doubt has no real costume design or character design yet, but this one line is the first real news on his production we have had since it was announced several years ago. There have been rumors, there have been talk, but there has been nothing solid, and this is solid as hell. In the comics, both Black Knight and Blade were members of Britain's MI-13 superhero team, which was, for a while, a British equivalent of the Avengers, so this is very much clearly a setup for more teaming up of them to come. As for the e- Ebony Blade in the comics, it was created from a starstone meteorite by Merlin, yes, that Merlin of Arthurine legend, and also Dane's ancestor Sir Percy of Scandia, and the first patient... Th- who was the first person to take on the mantle of the black knight forged to be worthy counterpart of excalibur the legendary magical sword of king arthur the weapon is incredibly deadly and virtually indestructible a symbolic divine weapon so powerful that it can cut through nearly any object or known substance in the universe except for those enchanted weaponry Oh, sorry. Except for other enchanted... I can't can't read my own notes. Except for other enchanted weaponry. It can also be summoned to its user like Thor's hammer Mjolnir and can even open pathways through dimensions and is immune to the effects of magic. Those are the bonuses. There are some neutral points, like the blade, uh, the Ebony Blade prevents its wielder from being killed through the power of resurrection. That's handy, but there are two catches to that. They must be holding the weapon when they died, and they must be a member of King Arthur's bloodline. Then there are the downsides. The sword corrupts anyone who carries it into battle. Slowly, the wielder will be infected by darkness, growing increasingly bloodthirsty and violent over time. By amplifying and drawing out repressed negative emotions of anyone who uses it, the sword pushes its wielder to the edge of sanity. The more blood they spill, the stronger the sword owner becomes, but at the cost of the user's humanity. This is going to be a really, really cool thing to see in the MCU. I have no freaking clue how they're going to design him um, because I don't think it would work to have an actual knight in black armor walking around in the modern day MCU. I just I just don't think that would fit. <laughs> um, so I'm super curious how they're going to make him work. Um, whether I have no idea if the next time we see him, if he'll have picked up the blade yet. Um, I know it's going to get confusing because I'm calling it the blade, but then blade was the voice in the scene. (laughs) I actually, um, on that note was really surprised that so many people were confused by that scene, not just by not knowing who blade was actually in my theater. He says the thing and the screen goes black and me and my husband are like freaking out at the back of the theater and everybody's like very confused clearly. And so I just yell, it was blade nobody that that clarified nothing for anybody in the theater my husband keeps telling me oh they were all you know they weren't born when the blade movies came out yeah but i was like a baby i was little i've only seen the first one probably you know i think i saw the one with, was it jennifer garner who was in one of those whatever it was um was it wasn't jennifer garner it was the other one who's married to justin timberlake shit i can't remember names um like i know who blade is i feel like blade is not really a household name but like blade the vampire hunter i feel like people should know that maybe i clearly have a really skewed version of reality in my head (laughs) um but as for like being confused about what the hell was going on in that scene if you've been keeping up with mcu at all you should understand by now that you're often introduced to the next big thing in these post-credit scenes It'll look like it doesn't matter, and it won't make any sense, but it will later, and it will matter later. So I I was very surprised to find that so many people were, like, underwhelmed by the post credit scenes. I don't know. What did you think? I'm curious what other people thought. That leaves us with what comes after this. What comes from this, I suppose. What comes after this is what's coming after in the MCU. But what comes from this? Uh, obviously, Dane is going to end up as Black Knight and is likely going to be on the new Avengers team. However, that turns out to be named with Blade, Shang-Chi, Cersei, Captain Marvel, Doctor Strange, maybe Miles Morales if we're lucky, and maybe Ant-Man still. Dane led the Avengers for a good long time in the comics, so it makes sense that that will be endgame for him. Um, Some articles did criticize the lack of Avengers being around to help with all of this. But this is, these events were were way, way above the Avengers' heads. The only public attack from the Deviants, as far as I recall, was in London, and that was over pretty quickly. The rest of what was going on was literally cosmic level, not something that any of the Avengers would be aware of, even Captain Marvel. Why would she? She's a space cop, not a historian or a scientist. Plus, I would bet that most of them are probably busy with their own bullshit to deal with some people are saying there's going to be a circe rescue mission i don't see that happening i get that dane is going to pick up the blade because he wants to help with the situation but there's a lot of shit on earth it's going to need helping with before he even gets a chance to think about how to get it into space um so i i definitely don't think there's going to be a Cersei rescue mission how are they going to track find and get her back from a celestial that that's a joke um i'm i'm sure they'll do fine for themselves as space lawyers, their own, you know, attorneys to the, whatever it is that he's gonna be judging them for. Um, we have also entered now the cosmic mindfuck part of the Marvel Universe. Welcome which is so much fun we've gotten a bit of the celestials here obviously and they are just the tip of the iceberg there's you know the physical embodiment of eternity which i kind of mentioned earlier there's the living tribunal which we got a tease of in loki there's gaia there's galactus and the power cosmic there's the one above all we're only just meeting kang and the watcher and then all the smaller characters like nova and adam warlock and so many others This has just bust open the doors of what is possible to have put out in the MCU what audiences will be able to take in and understand and enjoy and get anything out of. So it's busted open a lot of doors, it's made a lot of room for stuff, it's opened up a lot of plot lines, and it's set the MCU up for at least another decade of movies, not even TV shows, I'm I'm sure there can be a ton of tv shows i mean there already are a ton of tv shows that are working on their own stuff expanding but but eternals alone has just bust open at least a decade of mcu uh availability so um i don't know why people at one point thought that the mcu was over after endgame um That was never gonna happen. (laughs) This is this is they're getting started with basically phase two here. I know they're like saying phase five or whatever. This is basically phase two. Phase one lasted up through endgame. We kind of had this mid-phase of the Disney Plus stuff. Now this is Eternals is starting phase two. We're getting going with the next chunk. The next 20 years no the next day however long the next 12 years of mcu is what we're getting ready for here so expect to see a lot of these characters uh repeated and present in mcu projects for a very long time into the future Finally, what's next in the MCU? That's fairly easy. We have Hawkeye starting with two episodes premiering on the 24th of this month. That's only two and a bit weeks away. How exciting is that? We're going to have a whole new show. It's going to be six episodes. And then after that, we're going to have Spider-Man No Way Home in, what is it, mid-December? And then first thing in 2022 is going to be Morbius. Morbius. Um, And that's going to be mid-2022 before we get into things later on that year, such as Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness and Thor Ragnarok, not to mention the many TV shows that are supposed to be coming out next year as well. So there's always going to be plenty of stuff to talk about when it comes to the MCU, and I will plan on covering as much of it as I can take in. Uh, Last thing though, if you enjoyed this discussion of Eternals, let me know what parts of it you enjoyed. Um, If there were bits of like the history and the comics and stuff that you prefer to have more of or less of, let me know. So the next time I do one of these at big old MCU discussions, I can do it right by you. And that just about does it for this week's A episode of Sensational She Geek live from Nancy Street. Um, the next episode is going to be Friday. Uh, it might be Saturday the 13th, if I'm being honest, but it's going to be by the weekend-ish time. Remember, we're going to have that Tiger video up on Saturday as well. Super excited for that. It'll be on YouTube. Um, but the next episode is going to be the B episode and it's going to be covering the pick list for the week. Most likely some of the DC TV that I am super behind on watching and covering on the podcast. Um, and whatever the heck else news we come across between now and then, because, um, especially with the premiere of Eternals, there is bound to be news. There is always news. So we will actually didn't have news on this episode. This is not true. There's not always news. I'm sure there's news that I skipped, but we'll talk about it next time. (laughs) Have a great week. Um, it's gosh, almost halfway through November. I cannot keep up with time. (laughs) Do good, be good, be well, do well, have a nice week, be sweaty.